0: Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty whacks. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. Welcome to Destination Terror, your passport to the scariest places in the world. From haunted hotels to locations of unexplained creature sightings, and now places that we only visit in our imagination we will travel to places that will provide excitement, adventure, and horror. Today we are visiting the Lizzie Borden House, a bed and breakfast in Fall River, Massachusetts, infamous for being the site of the 1892 axe murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, for which Lizzie Borden was accused and acquitted. So if you're into travel and all things scary, listen close and you might just discover your next exciting adventure destination. But hopefully, not your final destination. Destination Terror is an EerieCast original podcast hosted by me, Carmen Carrion. If you would like to send us a suggestion or submit a story with your own experience, you can email them to at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Carmen Carrion. If you enjoy the show, please follow and rate Destination Terror on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to help us grow. Also, check out EerieCast.com for more scary podcasts, such as Freaky Folklore, the podcast where together we explore horrifying legends across the world, and tell terrifying tales of monsters both ancient and modern. I knew convincing Lily to come with me this weekend would be easy, but I wasn't sure Alex would be easily convinced. Lily and I had a bad habit of dragging him to weird places all the time. I traveled all over the U.S. visiting locations with grim pasts. I love all things scary. My love for horror sparked my career. I used to write scripts and stories for horror-based content for other people, until I realized I had the skill and knowledge to do it for myself full-time. Over the years of riding for others, I had slowly built a following that really loved my content. This past year, I was finally able to work for myself full-time, and it's been incredible. One downfall I didn't consider was having to travel alone to a lot of these places. I couldn't expect my friends to put their lives on hold and come travel with me, though I knew Lily would. I couldn't afford to pay her a living wage just yet but hopefully one day soon I can afford a whole team to do what I love. My next episode would be the Lizzie Borden house. It was a place on Lily's bucket list, and I knew she'd never forgive me if I didn't take her with me on this trip. Alex, well, we hadn't seen him much since he moved last year, and he lived only an hour from the Borden house B&B. That means we haven't been able to talk him into anything foolish for far too long. So I knew I had to talk him into this trip. As I had predicted, Lily was loaded and ready to go, an hour after I called her. We were in the car and on the road within two hours. Lily consumed her waiting coffee on the six-hour drive. She also had to take multiple potty breaks, to the point I thought we might never make it. By the time we made it to Alex's, it was dark. His amazing wife, Katie, met us at the door with a big smile and hugs. I have missed you guys so much. Katie pulled us into an embrace and squeezed us both. We've missed you two goofy squirrels, too. Now get in here. Dinner's on the table. The four of us ate and laughed until 2 a.m. Before we finally turned in, we discussed the trip and what I had planned for the next two days. Katie couldn't take off work, so we were pretty bummed that she couldn't go. But nevertheless, we planned to enjoy every minute of it. The next day, the air inside the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast was thick with anticipation, as Alex, Lily, and I settled into our respective rooms. Our shared love for true crime and the paranormal had led us to this historic house, infamous for the gruesome murders that occurred here in 1892. Armed with cameras, EVP recorders, and a sense of adventure, we were ready to spend the night in the very rooms where the Borden family tragedy unfolded. With my camera in hand, I eagerly snapped photos of the antique furniture and Victorian decor. The atmosphere was both thrilling and eerie. Alex, the resident skeptic, teased. You really think we're going to catch a ghost on camera, Sam? I shot him a mischievous grin. You never know, Alex. This place is known for being haunted. Lily, the true crime enthusiast, couldn't contain her excitement. Imagine sleeping in the same room where Lizzie Borden's stepmother was brutally murdered. This is like a dream come true. That statement earned her an awkward glare from Alex. Alex pressed his fingers to the bridge of his nose and sighed. How is it that I've let the two of you rope me into something like this again? Both of you have loose screws. Lily laughed in response while mocking his movements. As the night descended and the house embraced an unsettling stillness, we gathered in the sitting room to discuss our plan for the evening. Our excitement mingled with a tinge of nervousness. We decided to start our paranormal investigation in the room where Abby Borden met her tragic end. The flickering candlelight cast dancing shadows on the walls, as I hesitantly asked, Is there anyone here with us? Can you give us a sign? To our surprise, the spirit box crackled to life, emitting an otherworldly static. Alex exchanged an uneasy glance with Lily. Stop playing, you two, that's not funny. His breath was shaky and I pressed on. If you're Abby, can you tell us what happened that day? A faint, disembodied voice whispered through the static, sending shivers down our spines. Not her. Lizzie. Lily's eyes widened. Did you hear that? It said, Lizzie. Alex, a little unnerved, crossed his arms. This really isn't funny anymore. What are you guys doing? You know ghosts aren't real, and they certainly can't talk. Which one of you are making it do that? Undeterred, I didn't need Alex to believe, so I asked. Lizzie, if you're here, can you give us a sign? Suddenly, the temperature in the room dropped, and a chilling breeze swept through, extinguishing the candles. The trial of Lizzie Borden for the murder of her parents became a captivating spectacle for the public. The fascination with the case stemmed from the almost unimaginable brutality of the crime, especially considering the defendant's gender, background, and age. Contrary to the 81 blows suggested in a well-known verse, the Bordens endured only 29 blows, adding to the mystery surrounding the case, compounding the intrigue, was the jury's decision to exonerate Lizzie, despite the prosecution presenting evidence that many contemporary historians acknowledge as compelling? On a scorching August 4, 1892, at 92 Second Street in Fall River, Massachusetts, Bridget Maggie Sullivan, the maid in the Borden family residence, reclined in her bed after completing the task of washing the outside windows. The tolling bell of the city caught her attention, and consulting her clock revealed the time. It was 11 o'clock. The stillness was shattered by a cry from Lizzie Borden, the younger of the two Borden daughters. Maggie, come down. Come down quick, father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Approximately 30 minutes later, after the police had covered the body of Andrew Borden, described as hacked almost beyond recognition, and searched the downstairs for signs of an intruder, a neighbor, Adelaide Churchill, arrived to console Lizzie. It was then that she made a gruesome discovery on the second floor of the Borden home, the lifeless body of Abby Borden, Lizzie's stepmother. Notably, investigators found Abby's body cold, in contrast to the warm state of Andrews indicating that Abby had likely been killed earlier, possibly at least 90 minutes before her husband. In a headline titled, Shocking Crime, a venerable citizen and his aged wife hacked to pieces in their home, the Fall River Herald detailed the swift dissemination of the news surrounding the Borden murders, with hundreds converging on 2nd Street. The residence had been the abode of Andrew J. Borden and his wife, a place where they had lived in happiness for years. The Herald's on-site reporter provided a disturbing account of the deceased man's appearance. Over the left temple, a wound, six by four inches wide, had been made, as if pounded with the dull edge of an axe. The left eye had been dug out, and a cut extended the length of the nose. The face was hacked to pieces, and the blood had covered the man's shirt. Despite the gruesome scene, the room maintained an ordered appearance, devoid of any signs of a scuffle. Initial speculation, as reported by the Fall River Herald, revolved around a Portuguese laborer who had earlier visited the Borden home, seeking wages owed to him. Andrew Borden, claiming a lack of funds, instructed him to return later. Medical evidence hinted at Abby Borden's demise being the result of an attack by a tall man who struck her from behind. Shortly after the murder, newspapers started presenting evidence suggesting the possible involvement of 33-year-old Lizzie Borden in her parents' deaths. Notably, Eli Bents, a clerk at S.R. Smith's drugstore in Fall River, informed the police that Lizzie had visited the store the day before the murder and tried to purchase prussic acid, a lethal poison. The Boston Daily Globe carried stories about rumors asserting that Lizzie and her stepmother never got along together peacefully, and that for a considerable time back, they have not spoken. However, it also acknowledged family members' insistence that relationships between the two women were entirely normal. In contrast, the Boston Herald regarded Lizzie as beyond suspicion, stating, From the consensus of opinion, it can be said, in Lizzie Borden's life, there is not one unmaidenly, nor a single deliberately unkind act. The authorities concluded that the murders must have been perpetrated by someone within the Borden home. However, they were confounded by the absence of blood anywhere, except on the victim's bodies, and the inability to discover any apparent murder weapon. Suspicion increasingly focused on Lizzie, given that her older sister, Emma, was not home during the murders. Investigators found it peculiar that Lizzie seemed unaware of her mother's whereabouts after 9 a.m., despite her claims of having gone upstairs to put shams on the pillows. They also deemed her account of being in the backyard barn looking for irons during the 15 minutes when Andrew Borden was murdered in the living room as unconvincing. The barn loft she mentioned showed no footprints on the dusty floor, and the oppressive heat in the loft seemed discouraging for an extended search for equipment that wouldn't be used for days. Theories involving a tall male intruder were re-evaluated with a leading physician suggesting that hacking is almost a positive sign of a deed by a woman who is unconscious of what she is doing. The trial of Lizzie Borden commenced on June 5, 1893, at the New Bedford Courthouse, presided over by a panel of three judges. The defendant was presented with a formidable defense team, which included Andrew Jennings and George Robinson. The former governor of Massachusetts, District Attorney Knowlton and Thomas Moody argued the case for the prosecution before a jury of 12 men. Moody began the state's case by carelessly tossing Lizzie's blue frock onto the prosecution table during his speech, revealing the skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden. The newspaper account described the impact of this sight on Lizzie, causing her to fall into a faint that lasted for several minutes, creating a thrill of excitement among spectators and leading to genuine embarrassment and discomfiture among the counsel. Throughout most of the two hours of Moody's speech, Lizzie observed from behind a fan as the prosecutor portrayed her as the sole individual with both the motive and opportunity to commit the double murders. Moody further dramatized his argument by unveiling the ax head he claimed Lizzie used to kill her parents from a bag. The initial witnesses for the state recounted the events surrounding the Borden home on the morning of August 4, 1892. Bridget Sullivan, a 26-year-old witness, testified that, at the time of her parents' murder, Lizzie was the sole individual she observed in the home. However, Sullivan's testimony provided some relief for the defense, as she stated that, during her over two years of service to the family, she had not witnessed any signs of the rumored strained relationship between Lizzie and her stepmother. According to Sullivan, their interactions were pleasant, and Lizzie and her stepmother always spoke to each other. Nevertheless, other prosecution witnesses contradicted Sullivan's portrayal of Harmony. For instance, Hannah H. Gifford, who had crafted a garment for Lizzie a few months before the murders, recounted a conversation in which Lizzie referred to her stepmother as a mean good-for-nothing and claimed, I don't have much to do with her. I stay in my room most of the time. Sullivan also testified that on the day before the murder, both Andrew and Abby Borden experienced stomach pains. She informed the jurors that, around the presumed time of Abby's murder, Lizzie asserted she was washing outside windows. Sullivan described opening the door for Andrew Borden upon his return from a walk about town and later hearing Lizzie's cry for help a few minutes after 11 o'clock. Other witnesses reported seeing Andrew Borden at different locations in town during the two hours preceding his return home and subsequent death. Additionally, household guest John Morse, aged 60, detailed having breakfast at the Borden home on the morning of the murders before leaving to carry out his chores. The subsequent witnesses provided an account of events and conversations following the discovery of the murders. Dr. Seabury Bowen, The Borden family physician summoned to the home by Lizzie in the late morning of August 4th, recounted Lizzie's narrative about searching for lead sinkers in the barn and her relief that her father's disputes with his tenants likely played a role in the murders. During cross-examination, Seabury acknowledged the defense's suggestion that the morphine he prescribed for Lizzie could contribute to some of the confused and contradictory testimony she provided at the inquest following the murders. Adelaide Churchill, a Borden neighbor and crucial witness, recalled Lizzie wearing a light blue dress with a diamond pattern on it, but did not remember observing any blood spots on it. John Fleet, the assistant marshal of Fall River, recollected his interview with Lizzie shortly after the murders. Lizzie corrected him during the testimony, stating that Abby Borden was not her mother, but her stepmother clarifying that her biological mother had passed away during her childhood. The most compelling testimony once again came from Alice Russell. Russell described a visit from Lizzie the night before the murders, during which Lizzie announced her intention to go on vacation, and expressed a sense of foreboding, stating that something is hanging over me. I cannot tell what it is. Russell recounted that Lizzie, after describing her parents' severe stomach sickness attributed to bad baker's bread, revealed, I feel afraid something is going to happen. Lizzie explained that she wanted to sleep with one eye open at times, fearing that someone might burn the house down or harm her father due to his discourteous behavior. District Attorney Moody directed his questioning toward the Sunday after the murders asking Russell about the dress-burning incident. Russell recalled that when she inquired about the blue dress, Lizzie replied, I am going to burn this old thing up. It's covered with paint. During cross-examination, defense attorney George Robinson attempted to suggest that a guilty person seeking to destroy incriminating evidence would be unlikely to do so openly, as Lizzie allegedly did. Russell also recounted a conversation with Lizzie about a note supposedly received from a messenger on the morning of the murders, summoning her to visit a sick friend. Lizzie used the note to explain why she thought her mother had left the home and therefore didn't search for her body after discovering her father's. Despite an extensive search of the Borden home, the alleged note was never found. Russell mentioned that she sarcastically suggested to Lizzie that her mother might have burned the note. And Lizzie, as per Russell's account, replied, yes, she must have. The prosecution case was likened to a pigeon shooting match in which District Attorney Moody continually presented challenges akin to throwing up birds and dared his adversary to hit them. The defense, led by ex-Governor Robinson, responded by firing occasionally wounding or bringing down the challenges. Reporters were impressed with Robinson's performance, with one noting that the ex-governor is certainly without equal in New York City as a cross-examiner. Robinson appeared prepared to turn more or less to his own account. Nearly every government witness, as reported by one trial correspondent, the defense built its case primarily by challenging the testimony of the state's own witnesses, One reporter described the trial as full of surprises, with such marvelous contradictions given by witnesses called for a common purpose. The defense consistently pointed out the inconsistencies in the key prosecution witnesses' testimonies. Moreover, the defense sought to exploit weaknesses in the prosecution's case, questioning the absence of the handle that supposedly broke off from the axe, presented in court as part of the murder weapon. The defense raised doubts about the government's timeline, highlighting the challenge of washing away blood from one person's clothes and the murder weapon, then concealing the weapon, all within the short span of eight to 13 minutes, allowed by the prosecution's timeline between Andrew Borden's murder and Lizzie's call to Bridget Sullivan. A critical juncture in the trial occurred when the three judge panel decided that Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony, marked by contradictions and implausible assertions, could not be presented as evidenced by the prosecution. The judges reasoned that, during the coroner's inquest, Lizzie functionally operated as a prisoner charged with two murders. Her testimony, given without the presence of her attorney, was deemed involuntary, and the judges emphasized that Lizzie should have been informed of her right to remain silent under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. The state's argument that Lizzie was merely a suspect, not a prisoner, at the time of the inquest, was rejected. And the judges dismissed the notion that her statement should be admissible because it resembled a denial rather than a confession. On June 14th, the prosecution concluded its case with one final setback. The state aimed to have druggist Eli Bents testify before the jury about Lizzie Borden's visit to a Fall River drugstore on the day before the murders, during which she purportedly requested 10 cents worth of prussic acid, a poison. However, after excusing the jurors, each equipped with a palm leaf fan and ice water as they left the courtroom, the state's attempt to establish the qualities, properties, and uses of prussic acid through medical experts, druggists, furriers, and chemists was deemed inadmissible by the judges, who excluded the evidence. The defense called only a few witnesses to the stand, Charles Gifford and Uriah Kirby, testified that they observed a peculiar man near the Borden house at approximately 11 o'clock on the night preceding the murders. Dr. Benjamin Handy attested to seeing a pale-faced young man on the sidewalk close to 92nd Street around 10.30 on August 4th. Additionally, a plumber and a gas fitter gave testimony suggesting that in the day or two leading up to the murders, they had been in the Borden's barn loft. This testimony aimed to cast doubt on the police's assertion that Lizzie's alibi was questionable due to the seemingly undisturbed dust in the loft, where she claimed to have been searching for fishing equipment during the time of the murders. Emma Borden, Lizzie's older sister, was a highly anticipated witness for the defense. During her testimony, Emma asserted that Lizzie had a positive relationship with their father. She informed the jurors that the gold ring discovered on Andrew Borden's little finger had been a gift from Lizzie 10 or 15 years prior and he held it in high regard. Emma maintained that the interaction between Lizzie and her stepmother was amicable, although she acknowledged her own lingering resentment over her father's transfer of a Fall River home, referred to as Grandfather's House, to Abby and Lizzie. The defense had sought to introduce evidence, through Emma's testimony, that the Borden family had a practice of burning remnants and pieces of dresses, but the court ruled this evidence as inadmissible. Summing up the defense's case, A.V. Jennings contended that there was not one particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against Lizzie A. Borden. There is not a spot of blood. There is not a weapon that they have connected with her in any way, shape, or fashion. Governor Robinson, in his closing speech for the defense, asserted that the crime must have been perpetrated by a maniac or a devil, not by someone with the respectable background of his client. He argued that the state had failed to meet its burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt and emphasized the physical impossibility of Lizzie committing the crime within the prosecution's suggested timeline without the aid of an accomplice. Robinson ridiculed the theory that Lizzie might have avoided getting blood spots on her clothes by committing the murders while stark naked and proposed that an intruder who went undetected while exiting the house could be responsible for the killings. After Hosea Knowlton's adept summary of the prosecution's evidence, Justice Dewey instructed the jury, according to one newspaper report, the judge could not have more absolutely pointed out the folly of depending upon circumstantial evidence alone, if he had been the senior counsel for the defense making the final plea in behalf of the defendant. The charge was described as remarkable, a plea for the innocent. Justice Dewey advised jurors to consider Lizzie's exceptional Christian character, asserting that it entitled her to every possible inference in her favor. The jury deliberated for an hour and a half before delivering its verdict. The clerk inquired of the foreman, What is your verdict? To which the foreman responded simply, Not guilty. Lizzie emitted a cry of relief, sank into her chair, placed her hands on a courtroom rail, buried her face in her hands, and then let out a second exclamation of joy. Soon, Emma, her legal counsel, and courtroom onlookers rushed to offer their congratulations to Lizzie. She concealed her face in her sister's arms and declared, Now take me home. I want to go to the old place and go at once tonight. The verdict received widespread praise in the press. The New York Times, for instance, commented in an editorial, it will be a certain relief to every right-minded man or woman who has followed the case to learn that the jury at new bedford has not only acquitted miss lizzie borden of the atrocious crime with which she was charged but has done so with a promptness that was very significant the times went on to express its view that the verdict amounted to a condemnation of the police authorities of fall river who secured the indictment and have conducted the trial furthermore The Times criticized the vanity of ignorant and untrained men charged with the detection of crime in smaller cities, stating that the police in Fall River were the usual inept and stupid and muddle-headed sort that such towns managed to get for themselves. It is indeed fair to say that the prosecution failed to meet the burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt in the case of Lizzie Borden. The state's case relied heavily on the argument that no one else could have committed the crime. Despite some suspicious actions on Lizzie's part, such as burning a dress, the jury did not find this sufficient for a conviction. There is speculation that if the defendant had been a male, the jury might have been more inclined to convict. One of the defense's advantages was that in 1893, many people found it difficult to believe that a woman from Lizzie's background could have carried out such brutal killings. Following the trial, Lizzie Borden returned to Fall River, where she and her sister Emma purchased a grand home on the hill, called Maplecroft. Lizzie developed an interest in theater, frequently attending plays and associating with actors, artists, and bohemian types. Emma moved out of Metropolis in 1905, and Lizzie continued to reside there until her death at the age of 67 in 1927. She was buried beside her parents in Fall River's Oak Grove Cemetery. If she possessed knowledge of the true events that unfolded on that fateful day, Lizzie took her secrets to the grave. Who, then, could be responsible for this heinous crime? Who possessed both motive and opportunity? And who could have opted for such a gruesome, and malicious weapon to carry out the act. An intriguing hypothesis centers around the wild-eyed man, witnessed by several people around the house on the morning of the murders. According to this theory, the suspect in question might have been William Borden, the illegitimate son of Mr. Borden. It is suggested that William, seeking to extort money from his affluent father, who was allegedly in the process of preparing a will, could have been the perpetrator. This theory gained substantial support in Arnold Brown's book, Lizzie Borden, The Legend, The Truth, The Final Chapter. Brown skillfully demonstrates how this theory addresses numerous loose ends in the case, rendering it one of the most plausible explanations. In Arnold Brown's intriguing narrative, a hidden family secret adds a layer of complexity to the infamous Lizzie Borden case. Brown suggests that Andrew Borden had an illegitimate son, William Borden, a figure known within the family, but never openly acknowledged. The tension within the Borden household escalated just before the murders, fueled by Andrew's contentious will, which promised to distribute his wealth in a manner that displeased both Lizzie and Emma. Feeling slighted by their father's impending decisions, the sisters sought William's assistance in swaying Andrew against his intended course of action. Brown delves into William's troubled psyche, proposing that his animosity toward Abby, Andrew's second wife, stemmed from a distorted perception of her replacing his own mother. In this narrative, William, not known for sound mental faculties, harbored a particular resentment towards Abby. His fury ignited possibly exacerbated by taunts or dismissive remarks from Abby regarding his inheritance chances. Armed with a hatchet he habitually carried in a burlap bag, William unleashed his rage upon Abby, killing her in a fit of violence. Subsequently, as Andrew returned home, William confronted his father, and a heated argument ensued. Andrew, perhaps unaware of the danger, turned his back on his agitated son and laid down on the sofa. William's rage flared once more, leading to the brutal murder of his father. After committing the atrocities, William fled the scene, leaving behind witnesses who glimpsed an unknown man near the house shortly after the murders, a figure never identified. In Brown's speculative account, Lizzie chose to remain silent about the true killer, allowing herself to be implicated and subsequently acquitted. The motive behind this risky move was greed. By avoiding the revelation of the real murderer, Lizzie secured her and Emma's status as the sole, undisputed heirs to the Borden fortune. This gamble paid off, allowing the sisters to inherit the family wealth without the complications of sharing it with potential heirs of their half-brother. Whether Brown's theory accurately reflects the events of that scorching August day in 1892 remains unknown. Among the myriad theories surrounding the Borden case, Brown's narrative emerges as one of the most plausible, offering a unique perspective on the motivations and actions of those involved. Today the original Borden family home, on 2nd Street in Fall River, has been transformed into a bed and breakfast. Guests have the opportunity to spend a night in the very room where Abby Borden met her tragic end, painstakingly restored to its appearance on that ominous day. The house welcomes Borden enthusiasts, offering tours that delve into the enigmatic history of one of the most notorious crime scenes in American history. The truth is, we will likely never know what actually happened that fateful day. Okay, that was not normal, Alex admitted, eyeing the dark corners of the room. As we continued our investigation, strange occurrences unfolded. Shadows seemed to move on their own. Footsteps echoed in empty hallways, and we heard faint whispers that sent a shiver down our spines. Lily, ever the brave one, suggested we move to Lizzie's bedroom. In her room, the atmosphere felt heavier. My camera captured unexplained orbs of light, and the EVP recorder picked up soft, melancholic whispers. Convinced we were not alone, we sat in silence, waiting for another sign. Suddenly, the antique mirror in the corner began to sway gently, as if moved by an unseen hand. Lily gasped, and Alex's skepticism wavered. I, undeterred, addressed the unseen presence. Lizzie, if that's you, give us one more sign. In response, the room filled with the ethereal sound of a woman humming an old tune, a haunting melody that lingered long after we left the room. As we retreated to our own quarters, adrenaline pumping, Lily exclaimed, I can't believe it! And then Alex hesitantly admitted, I can't explain what happened in there, but it was definitely strange, and I'm not so sure you two aren't to blame. Believe what you will, sir, but that wasn't me. I warned you this place was haunted, I retorted with confidence. I've been to so many places that claim to be haunted and walked away disappointed. Not even one goosebump. But this was spectacular. Reviewing my photos, I couldn't contain my excitement. This is going to be the best episode of the podcast yet. As we settled into our beds, we couldn't shake the feeling that the spirits of Lizzie Borden's house had shared a piece of their tragic history with us. The true crime enthusiasts had become surprising participants in a paranormal encounter. That would make a good title, I thought to myself. Alex had tried and failed to sleep in his own room. He shamelessly asked to sleep in my room. We had scared him before, but this whole encounter was just a little too far for him. Notes for the future. This had also been my first encounter that yielded actual results as amazing as these. I had never captured voices before. I was far too excited to sleep, my mind was racing, and I couldn't wait to get the story out there with the evidence. I knew this would be huge for my show. I sat up until three that morning writing, when I heard a thud come from outside my room. Alex was sound asleep in my bed, and Lily had gone to bed hours ago. Lily? Was that you? I called out. No response. I heard another loud thud. This one was closer and much louder. Ha ha, Lily. You can stop now. You've scared the crap out of me. I said with a shaky voice. The loud sound of fists pounding on the bedroom door rang out. Alex shot up out of bed and I moved across the room beside him. What the hell was that? Alex asked. I shook my head. I don't know. I thought it was Lily at first, but... The door thrashed on the hinges violently. I shrieked in pure terror. I had never been this scared before. Not in all the places i have been. And I watched far too many true crime shows to know this won't end well. I shouted... We didn't mean to bother you. Just please don't hurt us. Tears. There were actual tears running down my face. The door swung wide open, and a black silhouette stepped forward. Damn it, Lily. You about gave us both a freaking heart attack. Lily was wide-eyed and looked horrified. I heard you screaming, and then I heard banging. I ran as fast as I could. What the hell happened? The banging wasn't you? Alex asked. No, I was sleeping. I got up to use the bathroom and that's when I heard Sam. The three of us looked around, dazed and flabbergasted. Well, whatever it was is gone now. We should get some rest. Come first lot, we're getting out of here, Alex announced. Well, I'm not going back in there alone. You two better make room, Lily said. We made it through the night without further incident. The next morning, Alex volunteered to drive back to his house so that I could work on my story while everything was fresh. I pulled out my camera to look through the photos again, but the camera was empty. All the photos I had captured were gone. In shock, I pulled out the recorder and I too was erased. I sank back into my seat feeling defeated. All my evidence was simply gone. I knew there was no way anyone would believe me, but that didn't really matter. I knew this trip would mark the three of us and we would never forget what we saw or what we heard. Thank you for joining us on our journey to the Lizzie Borden house. Tune in next week as we discuss another terrific location. I'm Carmen Carrion. Remember, you can send me suggestions and stories of haunted places to my email, CarmenCarrion at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Carmen Carrion. Go to EerieCast.com to find other terrifying podcasts such as Freaky Folklore, hosted by me, Carmen Carrion. Until next time, be safe out there. Until I see you at our next destination.